Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, what does the Air Force need to scare China? Our advantage in low observability and stealth, as well as long-range, high-payload, capable, penetrating aircraft. Uh, And you can take those words and translate them. That's four F-35s and that's B-21s. DHS's new cyber talent system could be a groundbreaker. That model could very easily convey out to the rest of the federal government. And the overarching task for the new version of the Defense Business Board. What are the missions of the Department of Defense? What are the key metrics that the secretary and the deputy ought to be tracking on, on a weekly or monthly basis? It's Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by AWS in collaboration with Polyverse. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The 2022 National Defense Authorization Act is headed to the White House for President Biden's signature. It passed the Senate today, 89 to 10, passed the House in September. The Department of Homeland Security will stand up a bug bounty program. Hackers can get from $500 to $5,000 for finding and reporting vulnerabilities. DHS says the program will run through the end of fiscal 2022 next September. More than half of users in the Army are on the new Army 365 platform. Army Deputy Chief of Staff and G6 Lieutenant General John Morrison says his service could hit 60% by the end of the calendar year. Morrison says the March deadline to get everyone in the Army moved to the new system could slide, though. The Chief Information Officer of the Army, Raj Iyer, will tell you more on Friday's Daily Scoop podcast. You can read more about all these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. Some huge names and great conversations are coming to the Daily Scoop podcast to close out 2021. Friday, Raj Iyer, the CIO of the Army, is here, as mentioned. Monday, the Chief Information Officer of the United States, Claire Martirana, is here for the entire show. And tomorrow, Congressman Jerry Connolly on FedRAMP, the federal workforce, and a lot more. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The new Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, says his service should stop doing things that don't threaten China. Kendall has his eye on a couple of programs already. Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, U.S. Air Force, retired as Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Dave, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What's your takeaway from what Frank is talking about, about retiring some of these programs in order to move that money to other places? Welcome. Well, thanks very much, Francis. It's uh, great to be on uh, and uh, chat with some of these issues with you. Um, I I think you have narrowed, uh, zoomed in on something that's extraordinarily important and has been at the top of the Air Force's uh, uh, interest area for a long time. Uh, And the reason that Secretary Kendall is uh, so focused on this is, um, uh, to quote him, he's, he's talked about the advancing age of the Air Force's fleet, which averages... Uh, about 30 years right now, as a, quote, anchor holding back the Air Force, uh, unquote. And I'd tell you that he's right. Uh, But this isn't an issue that occurred overnight. Um, For nearly 30 years, modernization of the Air Force has been deferred uh, due to other DOD uh, priorities. And I know, Francis, you pay attention to some of the reports that come out of D.C., and there was a blaring alarm contained in the recent Heritage Foundation report that lowered the rating of the Air Force from marginal last year to weak this year. 
Uh, and that's very concerning. And again, the reason that is, is because of the geriatric age of the Air Force, which was caused by, frankly, the Air Force being last in priority in budgets in the Department of Defense for the last 27 years in a row. Frank uh, talked about uh, MQ-9 Reapers, the A-10 Warthogs, some C-130s and others as specific examples. How did we get here? How did we get to the situation where these programs are so difficult to get rid of and they're so they, they block out other uh, modernization efforts so much, Dave? Yeah, well, again, that's called politics. Um, and but it's not I don't, I don't want to just lay it on the, the, the hands of the politicians, because kind of what I said earlier, this is also a function of the chronic and serious underfunding um, of the Air Force by the leadership in the uh, Office of Secretary of Defense for the last um, 27 years. I mean, as a result of this underfunding, the Air Force is currently the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready it's ever been in its history. I mean, just for your audience, I'll throw out a number for you. We've got some combat aircraft in the Air Force whose average age is 59 years old. That's the venerable B-52. But beyond that, 80% of the Air Force fighter inventory is operating beyond its planned service life. So these are, are chronic issues because remember, if you go back into the 90s, we were in search of a peace dividend. So there was a virtually no modernization of aircraft, Air Force aircraft in the 90s. And we got into the first decade of the 2000s, and the focus was on Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, in, in that regard, I'll just share with you that since 9-11, the Army received over $1 trillion more than the Air Force. Now, that's an average of 53 billion dollars a year more than the Air Force. We got it. I mean, the predominance of surface forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, that's great, but we're not long, we're no longer there. So I'm anticipating your next question. That's how do we get out of this? Well, the way we get out of this predicament is this time to rebalance um, that imbalance in resource allocation to modernize and grow the Air Force out of its current weak position. All right. You anticipated my next question correctly, General. So I will go to the one following that, which is what's the Air Force need? And we can you can take whatever approach you think is is appropriate. You can take a zero based. You can uh, take a, a formulation reform of what we have now, however you want to approach it. But what does the Air Force of 2025 and 2030 need to be able to do to implement its mission within the national defense strategy or a broad national strategy? And then how do we build to that? How do we resource to that? Right. Well, it's an excellent question. Um, and, and, and let me, you know, also add that the Air Force Chief of Staff, General uh, C.Q. Brown, has also underscored the importance of letting some of these older airframes go um, as a way for the service to bring on uh, more new aircraft like F-35s and investing in the next generation of air dominance, system of systems and aircraft, because the reason these older legacy aircraft need to be replaced, and they need to be replaced quickly, Francis, 
is because of the threat. We now have a threat that uh, can meet and in many cases exceed the capabilities of our current aircraft. The number one priority of the United States military um, is air superiority or the ability to operate uh, uncontested where and when we want to. So the reason that this is important is not just because uh, of the United States Air Force, uh, it's because that there's absolutely no joint force operation that can be conducted without some element of the United States Air Force um, operating. So the way to get there is to increase the production rate of our only fifth generation aircraft that's in production today, um, the F-35, and to invest in as rapidly as possible new capabilities, which mean, which means that the B-21 is coming on down the road um, very good. We need to consider, a, consider increasing the buy. It's a bit early to do that until we get the airplane uh, proven. Uh, and, and then we need to think about accelerating next generation air dominance aircraft. Now, uh, again, uh, a lot of what's holding this back um, is, is because we, we've got politicians um, who won't allow the Air Force to do what it needs to do. I, I, let me give you one example. The Air Force put together a very balanced plan to free up maintenance personnel to stand up a new F-35 wing at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. And to do that, they needed to retire a couple dozen out of hundreds of A-10s that we currently have. But there's one senator in Arizona that prohibited that and introduced a bill that forbid the retirement of any of these 40-year-old A-10s, none of which can contribute to a fight against China or their proxies. That's putting local politics over national security and that won't be fixed until we get term limits instituted. So. Well, the term limit discussion, General, is for another day on another program, but I appreciate the sentiment. Um, back to Secretary Kendall's quote, if it doesn't threaten China, why are we doing it? What of all of uh, across the spectrum that's potentially available to the Air Force, what threatens China? What makes the PLA say we should think twice about messing with the United States Air Force? our advantage in low observability and stealth, as well as long range, high payload, capable, penetrating aircraft. Uh, and you can take those words and translate them. That's more F-35s and that's B-21s. Um, and that's what we need to do. Um, uh, now, there is, a, a, for your listeners, uh, the Air Force made the decision um, after it was forced to do so by OSD to invest in the F-15EX. Um, this is an aircraft that was designed in the late 60s. Um, it first flew in 1972. And quite frankly, I'm the only Air Force officer that was fully combat mission qualified in the F-15C at every rank from Lieutenant to Lieutenant General. So I love the airplane. Uh, but it is an older airplane, but it has been modernized. And it, it is an airplane that we can ramp up uh, to get on the ramp uh, quickly to help uh, alleviate some of the age problems. So that's part of the solution too. Um, it has some great electronic warfare capabilities, but it doesn't have the stealth that the F-35 does. And, and so it's a combination of all of these elements. But bottom line, the current Air Force Chief of Staff coined the motto of accelerate, change, or lose. 
you've already said it and I'll repeat it that um, our current secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall's defined his three top priorities as China, China, China. But without a shift in DOD resources to the Department of the Air Force soon, what the entire Department of Defense risks accelerating is not change, but its potential of losing to China. So I'd tell you it's time to change that slogan to increase the Department of the Air Force budget share or lose. All right. I have a theoretical question to close out our conversation. I've had a number of conversations with um, different Navy experts about fleet construct. And the theme of those conversations usually revolves around a high-low mix where you have a group of uh, ships that are of very high capability and you have a number in the fleet that are, don't have to be as exquisite as the term that gets used. Is a similar construct appropriate for the Air Force or is the nature of the mission sufficiently different that the emphasis should be on, as you said, B-21 and the F-35, very high level, very high, highly capable aircraft, but also very expensive? Well, I, I'll just remind your audience that the Air Force was the one who introduced the high-low mix concept with the F-15, F-16 back in the 1970s. Um, it is one that is still appropriate, um, and you, you're, you see that coming with next-generation air dominance as the high-end F-35. Uh, you, you know, I t you've got to be careful here because you, you know low-end is not necessarily a good descriptor. Uh, but it's certainly the NGAD certainly going to be much more expensive than the F-35. F-35 costs are being driven down below to what you can buy a replacement fourth generation aircraft to. Um, so um, it, it's quite the value. Now, we at the Mitchell Institute have advocated for the Air Force to consider a new start on a new stealthy multi-purpose aircraft um, that would be a follow-on to the F-35, but you ought to start thinking about that now, um, that can be purchased in quantity. So um, uh, there's my answer to you. High-low mix is a, is a good uh, approach to go, but there are certain fundamental capabilities that are entry-level that are absolutely required if we're going to be able to meet advanced threats, and stealth is one of those. Dave, there's a ton more I'd like to cover with you. I'll have to bring you back, and we'll continue the conversation. Thank you very much. You bet. Have a great day. You can read more about the future of the Air Force in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The AWS cloud provides secure, scalable, and cost-efficient solutions to support the unique requirements and missions of the federal government. You can use AWS cloud services to meet mandates, cut costs, drive efficiencies, and increase innovation across civilian agencies, the intelligence community, and the Defense Department. You can visit aws.amazon.com federal to learn more. The Office of Personnel Management will offer cyber professionals more money to sign on to government service. OPM is the latest agency to create new vehicles for hiring cyber talent. Karen Evans is managing director of the Cyber Readiness Institute. She's a former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget, former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Karen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the significance in your mind of OPM kind of getting in the game here, like your former agency and others, at creating these special ways to get cyber talent in and keep them welcome? 
Well, thank you so much for having me come on, Francis. You know that this is a passion of mine of workforce and workforce development. And I think it's great that the uh, new OPM director is looking at ways to remove uh, barriers for entry, right? And that's really, you hear that often about, well, the federal government can't compete with salaries. The federal government can't offer the same amount of money. You know, you can hear these anecdotal stories where a government employee is sitting on a cyber watch floor and they're only making X amount of money and they turn to their you know, contracting partner and they're making three times the amount of money. So the government employee can quit and then turn around and a week later be on the same watch floor making three times the amount of money. So I, I applaud OPM for trying to take on this challenge and really um, looking at what are the best ways that they can compete salary-wise. The OPM director, instead of saying we are creating a new cyber structure for the entire federal government, said we're creating a cyber structure for our agency. And that's fine. I, I, OPM certainly needs cyber talent just as much as every other agency does. But I referenced the Homeland Security Department's new system. Angie Bailey talked about that on this program a couple of weeks ago. The experts that I've talked to, the HR people who look at the constructs say, well, it's a little bit different than the Defense Department program. DOD has a program. DHS has one that's a little different. My reading of FedScoop's reporting on the system that OPM has is it's a little different. And I wonder if this doesn't turn into another situation like we've seen before, where every agency is a little bit different and it becomes unwieldy and difficult to manage, Karen. So you're absolutely correct. And what you've just highlighted is um, could easily be fixed by Congress, because what you're taking a look at is DHS's system is under Title VI. So this is really inside baseball. And so they were given uh, authority seven years ago um, when we don't have to discuss how long it took to be able to do that. But they were given authority seven years ago. And what Angie's talked about, and I'm very excited about CTMS, because that model could very easily convey out to the rest of the federal government. DOD, again, has different authorities. And so you're looking at the DOD authorities, which then are allowing them to do slightly different construct. And then OPM, yet again, is another set of authorities under Title V. So you have three different sets of authorities, which is a pervasive problem that you see when you build IT systems, when you're managing information, and now you're seeing it with personnel. This could be easily fixed by Congress, who also agrees that cybersecurity is an important issue, could make these authorities extend out across the entire federal government. Is there one of those, Karen, that you think makes more sense or would work better long term or is maybe DOD system fine for DOD and the, the civilian agencies should take after the DHS system? Or what does what does a good end state look like for both the civilian agencies and the Defense Department? And, and that's a great question. And right now, um, the National Academy of Public Administration is actually really looking at workforce issues across the board. And that report, because Congress directed them to do the report, and um, that report is due at the end of January. 
I don't know that our analysis would come to um, a definitive conclusion the way that you're asking it. And, and I do think that um, in the long run, the way that some of the things that you have to do for DOD is unique versus the civilian sector. But I don't think what DHS is doing and what OPM is doing are unique unto themselves. I think that solution, could we have two solutions? Potentially, th that makes sense. Um, I do think the way that CTMS, and it's the tool, so it's the business process associated with what CTMS is implementing, the regulations, how they're going to compete, how they're going to evaluate people. It breaks down a lot of barriers like, oh my gosh, I have to have a CISSP and nothing against CISSP, okay? But that shouldn't be a hurdle that every employee has to get over in order to become a cybersecurity person. And I think the heart of the issue, Francis, is still around what is a cybersecurity professional? I mean, that, that answer, when you're asking what the end state is, there is a whole host of skill sets. You need leaders that can manage, that are cyber aware, and what I call have cyber acumen, just like, you know, an MBA, maybe we need to have an NCA, you know, something along the lines like that, <clears throat> all the way down to, if people say that they can read things and they can read NetFlow and they can read packets, then they, they better be able to do that and do the analysis. And so I think um, you saw some of this, and I love to think that it was my idea, but it was Beth Capella's idea. So, you know, um, where she, uh, when I got at DHS, she was combining both the network operations center and the security operations center into a network security operations center because you have to have both working together. They can't be bifurcated because you have to keep the mission going 24 by seven. So I think that's an excellent question. I think some fundamental answers have to be made. And I think with the appointment of Chris Ingalis as the national director, that could accelerate uh, the agreement between private industry, academia, and governments of what is a cybersecurity professional. All right. Uh, speaking of what is a cybersecurity professional, we had a chance to talk before we went on the air a little bit about the great loss that the cyber community has experienced of a real cyber professional, Alan Powler. And you talked about him, Karen, with such passion and such love. What was it that was special above and beyond the, the cyber contributions that Alan made through the Sands Institute and other ways uh, that made him such an important figure in that community. So Francis, I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about Alan. Uh, when we were talking before it started, I, I was um, telling you how he just impacted so many initiatives and he could see things before people could see them. And what was really great about Alan is, is that he also, I, I like to use the term collector of people and talent, and, and he was a great connector. So if someone had an idea, so I'll give you the best example that I can give you because people today still say that this was probably the most impactful initiative that ever happened, which was... He was very well aware of an activity that was happening over at Air Force, where they were actually 
um, configuring and locking down desktops. Then he turned around and he wrote a letter to the White House because this is when I was at OMB. And he said, hey, he wrote to my boss and said, this is a wonderful opportunity with the changing of the operating systems that you could actually lock down the configuration of a Windows desktop. And my boss gave me the letter and said, okay, who is this guy and what is this about? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, the, you know, I said, Alan's got another great idea. And I said, and when Alan has a great idea, I said, he's going to use all the levers that he can to try to see if the great idea, you know, can come to fruition. And when the more I looked at it, I said, you know, this makes a really good sense. So it was like getting um, NIST together. And then we got the Air Force together. And then I still remember to this day when um, I called Steve Ballmer and I said, hey, what if we could save you a lot of money? And he said, okay, <laughs> I'm listening. And I and it and so I explained to him what we were doing about the federal desktop core configuration. And I, you know, if you talk to people who've been in this for a while, like Jim Lewis, like Tony Sagar, they all say this was it was an amazing thing that the government did because not only did we leverage NIST, the work that the Air Force did, um, you know, procurement, we put it into federal procurement and drove it down through those lines, but Alan's the one who could see things before they could happen. I, I like to just, I, I aspire to be like that. And I think a lot of CIOs have this, um, this attribute, which is you can see the world as it should be, and you see the world as it is. And you need to be able to traverse and make that plan to get you where you need to go. And that's what CIOs do. Alan was a great collector of people that could get you where you need to go to achieve those results. And then he would connect you. I mean, I can, there, there are major cybersecurity initiatives like the Center for Internet Security that led to the multi-state ISAC, that led to the election ISAC. He started that. I remember going to lunch with him when I was at the Office of Justice Programs. I was one of the initial founders. So I, I could go on for hours but um, I, I just like he just is going to be such a great loss for the cybersecurity world. And he he is the quintessential cybersecurity professional. Karen, what passion and well-deserved uh, my interactions with Alan were not nearly as many as yours, but just as high quality as yours. It is a tremendous loss. And I love uh, hearing you speak with such passion. It's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You can read more about the cyber talent effort at OPM in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Whether you want to enhance customer experience, improve productivity, optimize business processes, or scale up innovation, AWS offers the most complete set of machine learning and AI services. That's why more than 100,000 customers from the largest enterprises to the hottest startups choose AWS. You can visit aws.amazon.com slash AI to learn more. 
The Defense Business Board will take on three huge tasks for senior leaders of the Defense Department. The first big deadline the board has is this coming March 31st. Deborah Lee James is the chair of the Defense Business Board. She's the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force and author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Madam Secretary, thanks very much for coming on. Madam Chair, I don't know which is the best title to use for you now, but thank you very much for joining me today. Um, the deadline that I'm referring to is a mentor protege program assessment study. Tell me more broadly about the work that the board does to support the leaders of the Department of Defense. Welcome. Well, first of all, Francis, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And you can call me anything you like, anything you like. Okay. Um, the role of the Defense Business Board is we're a group of private sector leaders and we provide outside private sector oriented advice and lessons learned and perspectives to the top leaders in DOD on business management, culture, and practices that we hope from our learning in the private sector can help them in the government. So that's what we're all about. We're all a group of volunteers. And uh, we work at the direction of the secretary and the deputy secretary of defense. So as you mentioned, we have three initial studies that we have been directed to do. And the first one out of the shoot relates to the mentor protege program. Um, the background on this one, Francis, is actually it was directed in the National Defense Authorization Act a couple of years ago. And so this is sort of our must-do study as the first order of business because it is due in the spring. And it relates to whether or not this program, which is designed to lift up small, disadvantaged minority businesses, whether in fact it is producing results and whether it can be improved. There, are, uh, I'm going to go out of order for a moment, Madam Secretary. Reskilling and upskilling career DOD civilians in new and emerging technologies is another study that you're undertaking. That deadline's June 30th of next year. Um, and that strikes me as tremendously important given the technology advances that the department needs to make in order to keep pace with its near peers or, or, or now, as uh, Hawk Carlisle said on this program yesterday, peers referring to China and Russia. I think you're absolutely right. This is a very, very timely one. And within the career civilian workforce, of course, we have civilians all over the country, all over the world, and different types of jobs and skills. The question is, are the right people in the right jobs, and are we prepared to meet the future with the skills that we have? My guess is we are not. We are not at least fully there. And so there are going to be gaps. This is what we will be identifying in our report. What are the requirements for the future of what we need our civilians to be doing? What are the current gaps? And then what are some ideas for taking the existing people? Because, you know, within the civilian workforce, you just don't fire and hire at will. There, it's a very highly regulated, uh, driven by specific laws and procedures approach. So what can we do in the way of training programs, upskilling, meaning you're in a certain skill set, but you need to improve those skill sets? Or then there is reskilling, which is I have a certain skill set and I need to learn something completely new. We're going to be looking at all of that as part of our review. I note that in the uh, charge that your board was issued and the word out of those three, attracting, retaining and upskilling, that jumped out at me was the upskilling because the, the, the there's opportunity all the way around there there's opportunity for the employees to gain skills that they didn't have before and thereby make it more attractive for them to stay in in the department of defense maybe they move around from mission to mission um, but that 
helps your retaining and attracting pieces too when that becomes kind of the de facto position of the department, doesn't it? Absolutely. And just based on my experience within the department, Francis, I will tell you, I think we do a much better job of providing training opportunities, training programs for our uniformed military personnel. We have done a whole lot less for the career civilian workforce. So I'm really hopeful that this one will give us a platform to advocate for civilians and for the types of training programs that they will need for the future. Can you use some of those structures that you use for uniform personnel for civilian personnel too, or the natures of the way that they serve or some other issue? uh, Does that make that different or difficult? I suspect, and again, this is premature because we haven't completed our work. We're only just beginning, but I suspect the answer is probably yes and yes. There will be some areas where it's simply there is not enough overlap that it doesn't make sense to train civilians in a similar fashion as we train military. But then I'm going to go out on a limb here and say probably there are other opportunities where it would make perfect sense, Mm -hmm. where we can mix the two communities together and uh, sort of get that double bang for the buck. The third one is executive analytics for defense business operations. And this strikes me as an effort to, if I, if I were going to categorize it, it would sa- it sounds like what the department's going for here is understanding ways that it can apply some of the private sector business techniques that these leaders have experienced to the way the department does business. Am I on the right track? You're absolutely on the right track. And, you know, if we had the CEO of uh, Walmart with us or the CEO of United Airlines with us, by the way, one of our members is the retired CEO of United Airlines. The point is, leaders of large organizations these days use dashboards and they're looking at metrics on a continual basis. And they're doing so in a way that allows them, if they so desire, to dig deeper on some of the data that underpin the metrics. Now, in the private sector, key metrics might include uh, profitability, revenue on certain programs, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, the metrics will be different for the Department of Defense. Our challenge is to try to advise on what some of these correct metrics would be, meaning what are the missions of the Department of Defense and what are the key metrics that the secretary and the deputy ought to be tracking on, on a weekly or monthly basis. Other metrics can then be tracked at a level below them, but what are the key metrics and what is the frequency that they ought to be looking at them? That's the key question we're trying to answer. You referenced Oscar Munoz, a member of the Defense Business Board, the retired CEO of United. And as I looked over the membership here in anticipation of talking to you, I did notice a a tremendous breadth of experience here. Uh, The chief technology officer at Zillow, the real estate uh, website and application service. Uh, You have three retired uniformed military personnel here, uh, General Spencer, General Votel, General Wilson. So you have really a little bit of everything here. The former Comptroller General of the United States, uh, David Walker from uh, Government Accountability Office. You have a little bit of everything here, don't you, Debbie? We do, and that's the power of diversity. Mm -hmm. I think this is the most diverse board in the history of the Defense Business Board. It's been around since 2002, and no matter how you slice and dice it, if you look at it by gender, if you look at it by race, if you look at it by background, I think we do have a little bit of everything, and we intend to leverage, I as chairman certainly intend to leverage that diversity of talent for the studies that we are embarking upon. So, for example, 
the mentor protege program, which is all about lifting up the small disadvantaged businesses, that's being chaired by Joe Anderson, who is a former army officer, Vietnam era army officer, but in his civilian life since that time, decades ago, has been a specialist in building small businesses into large businesses in the small disadvantaged minority grouping. So he is perfect to lead that study. He knows a lot about how that happens in the private sector. So that's an example of leveraging the kind of talent. And by the way, like I said, different perspectives. We have people who are small business people as well. Jennifer McClure is the CEO of a small business named Unbridled Talent. It's all about uh, people and and, uh, human resources. And so she's involved with the upskilling and reskilling study. So uh, I think we're going to make good use of the talent of the board. Beyond hitting the deadlines and delivering on the deliverables that you're called to deliver, what will you, how will you measure success, Madam Secretary? Well, I think success is ultimately measured if we, you know, answer the mail, first of all, do the studies that we are asked to do and the senior leaders feel like we have met the mark. That's one element of success. Another element of success, I will say, which is beyond our purview, I will admit, do the recommendations actually get implemented within the Department of Defense and do they make a difference? That is not exactly our purview. As I said, it will be up to the leadership in DOD whether they choose to accept the recommendations and implement. I certainly hope uh, that they will. Uh, but time will tell. But that would be another measure of success, at least for me personally. All right. Um, one of my New Year's resolutions is to simplify my life. So moving forward, I'm just going to call you Debbie. Thank you very much for coming on today. It's great to see you. Sounds good. Thank you, Francis. Happy holidays to you. You can read more about the mission and work of the Defense Business Board in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. Congress is considering a new update to the Federal Information Security Management Act. The authors of the update want to move agencies out of the compliance business and into the security business full-time. Archis Gore is the chief technology officer at Polyverse. Polyverse and Amazon Web Services sponsoring today's Daily Scoop podcast. Archis, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What do you see as far as that that convergence of the idea of uh, compliance versus the idea of actual security? It's been challenging for CIOs, CISOs, and others in government for a long time. Welcome. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I so so I you know I I understand the frustration. I. I, I think that we are, you know, I think we are converging. So a great example, uh, I'd like to start with an example of uh, NIST has the zero trust architecture, right? And if you look at that, um, the ZTA is is a is really a very, very good um, combination of a list of, check, uh, you know, a, a checklist, not a list of checklists. Um, and you know, as well as many aspirational aspects to look out for, right? And so, if you look at GDPR, GDPR is both compliance as well as it gives you a lot of guidelines and rules, uh, and it leaves the the implementation of those rules to you. And and so, there is a number of um, you know a number of new regulatory frameworks that are coming out are are really focusing on impact as opposed to actions. And I think where the where the frustration with compliance versus 
real security always came from is when compliance dictates actions, we have a problem, right? Because someone could have a better action, someone could have a better mousetrap. And so uh, more and more compliance uh, frameworks are saying no more than five mice per warehouse, as opposed to saying you must install five mousetraps. How does that impact the way that an organization actually does the day-to-day operations that it needs to do? What that does is it um, it it gives up. So so there's three impacts that it has, right? So if if you really wanted to, if you were spinning up a new service, right, and you just need a list of actions, um, it takes away the burden of actions because there are prescriptive actions, and so you can just say, I'm going to have identity. I'm going to have antivirus, I'm going to have, you know, firewalls, and it gets you compliant very, very fast. Um, On the other hand, for more mature organizations, it leaves the door open to say, you know, because of the way that we've done an architecture, uh, we don't need a firewall because we have zero trust or because we have, you know, end-to-end encryption or whatever you've done. And so, you know, it, it allows the freedom of, of sort of both worlds, it gives you a good baseline, but it allows you to do more than the baseline and, and, and recognize that. It sounds like we're kind of entering a new period of convergence too, because for a long time, the discussion revolved around basically digging a moat around your agency and Mm -hmm. making sure the bad guys didn't get past the moat. I think for a long time, agencies gave up on that idea and said, well, we're going to protect the data itself. And it sounds like what you're suggesting is that both of those ideas maybe now are converging and that's the next wave. Am I hearing you right, Arches? Yes, yes, you absolutely are. It's, um, I mean, the the irony of this whole situation, though, is the entire internet was invented um, because we, you know, I mean, militaries for, I mean, thousands of years, it's been known that you you never try to build a moat, right? I mean, even around castles, you you do have the moat, and it's it's beautiful, but um, but you need to have layered defenses. You need to assume that moats will be breached. And the, I mean, we invented the whole internet because we we knew that we couldn't protect those phone lines, right? We we had to do packet switching. We had to have redundant networks, and and you know, and I think that idea is sort of coming back around after almost forty years. Um, in cybersecurity, where we're, we're making those assumptions again. So the word that I keep hearing about that concept is resilience. What are agencies learning from private sector companies about resilience? And is there something that different about the way a government organization should think about resilience versus the way a private sector company does it? Um, actually, what I would say is it's a, it's a feedback loop, right? A one one of my favorite examples in resiliency, and, and resiliency isn't always about cybersecurity, right? It, cybersecurity is an outcome of architectural choices. Now, AWS is a great example of their cel- cellular architecture, right? All of AWS um, is built on small independent cells that don't need to interact, um, you know, that can interact to provide you a, a larger whole. But when push comes to shove, they don't need to interact to function. And that kind of a concept has, again, it's not a new concept, but to see a large, you know, the largest cloud provider in the world sort of mainstream that concept uh, feeds back into agencies to say, you know, do you have one large data center with one large generator that you're then protecting with, with you know, the, the best NAM, you know, regiment that you can find? Or are you having 50 small generators distributed across the country? And, and I think, you know, and then I think that a lot of that legitimizes those concepts for small companies. And, and one thing I, I, I wanted to say here is, 
is a lot of times legitimacy is the word because you know when when you're in an industry full of dogma and and words and rules and regulations um these ideas exist um you know it's not that they're new but having aws having the government feedback of, of each other and then legitimize those ideas helps a lot of smaller companies or a lot of advocates in in other companies use those as a way to bring those concepts um, in there. You, speaking of words and rules and recommendations, uh, you mentioned the zero trust architecture guidance. What's your sense of the level of constructiveness, of helpfulness, of guidance like that, guidance like what comes out of NIST, uh, guidance that comes out of CISA, uh, executive order on cybersecurity, all of that. There are a lot of constructs there that agencies have to think through. That may be good if I if the content of the constructs is good. What do you see in all of that stuff that's out there right now, Arches? Um so, so I see, you know, one of the great things is I see good intentions on all sides. Uh, and, you know, that, that's always a great place to start. Um, I think that, you know, any, any guidance when taken as dogma is very dangerous, doesn't matter what that guidance is. But, um, you know, the, the executive order uh, around uh, supply chain integrity or, you know, the NIST framework, Zero Trust, uh, CISA, the, the thing with guidance is that it's a great way to open a conversation. It's a great way to think. So imagine if I, I wanted to start a new bank today evening, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm just me and I, you know, me and five people start a bank and we want to do the best cybersecurity and we have no place to start. And we can start from first principles by reading academic papers or we can look, you know, we can hear, um, you know, sort of anecdotes from our friends who work in cybersecurity. And for a person like that, having these guidances, having these structures is a very good starting point. It's not the end, but it's a very good beginning to give you a, a great way to begin a conversation, have a framework in place and think about the issues you need to look at. All right. A uh, final thought. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's the takeaway for an organization in government that's trying to combine all of those things? And like we kind of started in this spot, they're also trying mm -hmm. to make sure their networks are secure every day and, and that they are ready to rebound when somebody gets in, that they are resilient. What's what's the dot connector there in your view? Um, so three things, right? Uh, one is assume that you will be breached. And so run through, um, you know, run through protocols after breach which very few people do this is uh, this is similar to planning disaster recovery for availability right the second is um you know think about what the guidance is meant to be think about the intent of the law as opposed to the words of the law right um and then the third one is go go based on impact right do where don't avoid uncomfortable work because it is uncomfortable do the work that gets the most benefit and sometimes that might be the simplest work sometimes that might be uncomfortable but don't be blinded if it's hard it's hard for everyone you're not alone and and we're all here to help arches thanks very much for joining me it's great to have you on the program today thank you the Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, Congressman Jerry Connolly on the future of FedRAMP, the future of the federal workforce, and a lot more. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon at FedScoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.